Hello, and welcome once again to another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician and multiple Ironman finisher coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. Since the last episode when I mentioned the COVID-19 epidemic, things have escalated in dramatic fashion in the United States and around the world. What was initially an epidemic of concern has rapidly blossomed into a pandemic and has resulted in entire countries being locked down, major professional sports leagues suspending their seasons, and inevitably, the postponement or cancellation of triathlons. As of right now, when I'm recording this, Puerto Rico 70.3 has officially been canceled, but I have it on pretty good authority that all of Oceanside, Galveston, Ironman Texas, and Ironman St. George are soon to follow. Now, Ironman hasn't officially announced these cancellations, but given the statements being made by local governments in the areas hosting these events, I think that it's pretty safe bet that this is going to come to pass. Right from the start, I want to acknowledge how upsetting this is. We all work hard and train hard and spend hard-earned dollars to participate in a sport that we love, and having races cancelled like this is really a bitter pill to swallow. I'm pretty sure, though, that I don't need to tell any of you how serious the situation must be for this kind of response to be happening. There's so much at stake for the most vulnerable in our society that the economic hit caused by all of these cancellations must be worth it as a trade-off for blunting the impact of the spread of this illness and hopefully mitigating its impact in terms of serious illness and deaths. Only time will tell. For now, though, I do want to give kudos to the World Triathlon Corporation for their response to these uncertain times and the wave of cancellations. Ironman has acknowledged that they are very much at the mercy of local and state governments when it comes to these decisions, and that they often don't get a lot of notice in having to make these decisions. They have agreed to defer athlete entries to the postponement date if one is made, or to the following year's event, which in my mind is very fair, if not completely ideal. There will always be people who are critical of the WTC, and I understand that. But honestly, in this case, I feel like they're doing their best, and that their best is pretty darn good. In related news, I wanted to mention that I have a new article up on the Training Peaks Coaches blog on the COVID-19 pandemic. You can find it on the Training Peak website under Resources, Coaches blog. And I wanted to make a point that COVID-19 is not transmissible in chlorinated swimming pools. A couple of people reached out to ask me this, and I thought it was worth mentioning here. On the show today, Laurel Graham completed her first Ironman in Louisville last October in the Physically Challenged Athlete Division. For Laurel, making the decision to compete in the PC division was surprisingly difficult, and her experience was one that I genuinely enjoyed learning about when I spoke with her about it. We recorded our interview quite some time ago, but I had to wait until now to bring it to you because of the series that started on the Game Changers right around that time. I'm really excited to bring it to you now on this episode. With spring really asserting itself, the North American Triathlon Series is just about to start. With that, the Triathlete Routard returns as your field guide to help you learn about different races on the WTC calendar. Today, my guest and I will discuss the Ohio 70.3 race that takes place in Delaware, Ohio in late July. But before all that, as always, I have a medical question to answer. I've discussed hydration on this program several times, and a listener recently asked, why all the hype with various sports drinks and powder? Is there anything wrong with drinking plain old water during training and racing? Well, I answer that question coming up right now. We often hear how nutrition is the fourth discipline of triathlon. When we consider nutrition, we really need to think about this in three different ways. Calories, 
water, and electrolytes. And I have discussed all of these to some degree in the past. And the question for this episode brings up some overlap on these issues. And that is, why can't we just drink water in order to get our hydration when training and racing? Well, water absorption takes place in the small intestines. And several things have to occur in order to maximize absorption of that water and for us to stay hydrated while we're training and racing. Those things include adequate intake, in other words, taking in enough water to begin with, enhanced gastric emptying, so the stomach has to then empty and pass the water into the intestine, and enhanced uptake from the lumen of the small intestine. Now, how much water is enough? I've discussed this before, and it depends on many things. There are individual characteristics. For example, how much a different person sweats. They may need more if they sweat more. Uh, Your initial state of hydration. People who start a training session or a racing session with a lower level of hydration are going to need to take in more than someone who is fully hydrated. And finally, how hard you are working. And then there are environmental considerations. How hot is it? And more importantly, how humid is it? So how much evaporation are you going to have of sweat from your body and therefore water loss? In general, for most people, 500 to 750 cc's per hour is going to be about what they can handle. A liter per hour is going to be the absolute maximum, and that is how much they can take in, then empty from the stomach and be able to absorb. Now, when you're racing, you want to avoid taking too much because when you take in too much fluid, you start to have that sloshing feeling of fluids in the stomach that aren't passing forward. And this inevitably can lead to nausea and, in the worst cases, to vomiting. So there are several things that people can do to try and avoid this. The first is to take frequent small amounts. And this can be done by drinking pretty much as continuously as possible, rather than waiting for aid stations and then trying to gulp down an entire bottle all at once and then ending up with a large volume in your stomach. You want to be taking sips of fluid pretty much all the way along between aid stations and then replenishing your bottle when you get to that aid station. Now, there are other things that you can do that can help gastric emptying. Fluids need to be less concentrated and have less than 8% carbohydrates. Those fluids that contain more than 80 milligrams of carbohydrate per liter are going to end up causing delayed gastric emptying. Fluids that have less than 4% carbohydrates, uh, in other words, 40 milligrams of carbohydrate per liter, actually prohibit uh, gastric emptying as well. So too high or too low, and you can end up with problems. Now, this brings us back to the question about drinking plain water, because now you can see that doing so can actually decrease fluid absorption, because water without sugar in it actually decreases gastric emptying, results in that water sitting in the stomach, and as a result, you end up with that bloating feeling, the sloshing around, potentially nausea, and then vomiting. Okay, so we've talked about how much you need to take in and how you end up getting it out of the stomach and into the intestine. Let's turn our attention to uh, absorption because getting the water into the intestine is one thing, but you have to be able to get it out of your intestines and into the bloodstream in order to do its job and keep you hydrated. Well, again here, sugar is important for absorption, but more important than that is the presence of sodium or salt. 
As sodium is taken up both actively and passively by the cells that line the small intestine, water tends to be dragged along by what is an osmotic gradient that is created. Essentially, the concentration of sodium is higher within those cells of the lining of the intestine than it is within the lumen of the intestine itself, and that is called a concentration or osmotic gradient, and it pulls water along. So again, Similar to what we saw with gastric emptying, plain water is not going to be very helpful if it's sitting in your intestine because it's not going to be readily absorbed. Your intestine does a much better job of taking up salt molecules, and this pulls water, than it does taking up water on its own. And so water that sits in the intestine without salt actually tends to get passed along without being absorbed, and that ends up causing you problems, not so much with nausea, but rather the other end of the problem. So water that contains electrolytes is going to be absorbed much better than free water on its own. Now, this isn't to say that plain water is a bad thing, only that drinking only plain water is, is not such a good idea. So if you're doing a race and you're drinking a fairly concentrated liquid, it's got a lot of carbohydrates, it's got a lot of electrolytes, it's where you get most of your calories for your race, it's not a bad idea at an aid station to grab a bottle of water and just guzzle, uh, you know, half of it. Uh, that's usually about 250 cc's at once, because at that point you're going to dilute what's left in your stomach and allow that to be taken up and the water to be absorbed. So you can top up what you're taking on the race course with free water and you'll do just fine. Now, sports drinks were developed several decades ago as a means of addressing hydration in athletes who were getting insufficient hydration when they were drinking just water alone, especially in hot environments and especially in sports that required them to wear a lot of clothing and equipment like football, and that would prevent them from being able to cool off, they would sweat a lot, and they'd really get dehydrated quickly. Unfortunately, most commercial sports drinks contain a lot of sugar and not nearly enough salt. And so as a result of this, there is a bunch of niche products that have come around and uh, fill the gap between sports drinks and water, and a lot of these are really excellent. There's no doubt that some of them are kind of pricey, but at the end of the day, they're going to provide improved hydration over either plain water alone or the common sports drinks that you can see in any 7-Eleven. Now, don't confuse this kind of hydration with these niche products. I'm thinking of Scratch, for example, or Base, or Osmo, or any of these other uh, products that you can find that include uh, some amount of electrolytes. This is not true electrolyte supplementation. I've covered that subject numerous times, and for the most part, electrolyte supplements are not indicated for most athletes. However, electrolytes in this form as a means to improve fluid uptake is definitely recommended and, in fact, is actually the best means to get all the electrolytes that you need during a race without taking additional supplementation. Now, one product that I came across, one of these niche products, if you will, in preparing this segment that drew my attention and that uh, a, friend and, uh, a friend and fellow triathlete drew my attention to is a product called Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier. The unnecessarily redundantly named product is marketed very slickly with a host of claims that would make you think that by using it, you somehow condense water from the atmosphere to augment the amount that you're taking by mouth. They would have you believe that drinking a bottle of water with liquid IV hydration multiplier somehow turns into three bottles of water. Now, this product was developed by an orthopedic surgeon, and liquid IV is a concoction of sodium, potassium, sugar, and some vitamins, and they make some pretty audacious claims about how using it is going to allow you to take up fluids much more efficiently and quickly than otherwise possible. 
There's a whole bunch of web space developed to the notion of cellular transport technology for liquid IV hydration that the makers would have you believe that they invented in order to make it sound much more technical and fantastic. Well, the reality is this. Liquid IV is just a powdered form of various other rehydration formulas used in both adults and children who have become medically dehydrated, usually because of diarrhea or other issues resulting in their being unable to either take things by mouth or absorb properly in their gut because of medical diseases. Cellular transport technology that liquid IV hydration talks about is nothing that they invented. Rather, it's just the means by which water gets absorbed along with electrolytes. It isn't really clear how this company got a trademark on a biological process that they didn't invent or have anything to do with, but there it is. Now, some of the things in this mix are completely extraneous. Potassium, for example, that's just going to get peed out and really isn't necessary when exercising, and the vitamin complexes that they talk about are completely unnecessary. Now, the cost of liquid IV hydration is $1.52 per serving and is pretty expensive for no benefit over other products that don't make such outlandish claims and that I've mentioned previously in this segment. So I think the long and the short of it is you can drink water for short intervals or short exercise, short workouts, if you will, but if you're planning on doing a long workout and certainly during a race, free water alone is simply not recommended. You are not going to get adequately hydrated. In those instances, you absolutely need to have some electrolytes and some sugar in order to empty the stomach and absorb water more efficiently. There are various products out there. You don't want something that has too much sugar. You don't want something that has too little sugar. You definitely want something that has salt in it. And you definitely don't want to be spending for liquid IV hydration. Do you have a question for me to consider answering on the podcast? Well, send it to me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. My guest today is a recently newly minted Ironman triathlete, Laurel Graham. As an adolescent, Laurel was diagnosed with Charcot-Marie-Tooth muscular dystrophy, and with that was told what some of her limitations in life would be. Shortly after being diagnosed, she was given a gym note excusing her from running more than an eighth of a mile, and at the time, that was fine with her, since she hated running anyways and thought people who ran for fun were crazy. Fast forward to her college years, and her muscular dystrophy had advanced to the point that she was unable to walk without her ankles rolling out, so she adapted to walk on the sides of her feet. It was around that time that she got plugged in with an amazing surgeon who performed bilateral foot and ankle reconstructions that gave her a new lease on life. However, the surgeries came with a new set of limitations, and she was told that she wouldn't ever be able to run, and if she did run, she needed to be prepared for the consequences. During her recovery, even getting up to go to the bathroom was a chore, and she promised herself that if she made it through that, she'd get in the best shape of her life. She held to that promise, which led her into competing triathlons, and in 2016, she finished her first half Ironman, a goal she never thought she'd reach. Then, just a few short weeks ago, Laura completed her first Ironman race in Louisville, where I first met her. She likes to say that hers is not an entirely a story of medical noncompliance, but rather of saying, to hell with limits. If she can do this, anyone can. Welcome to the podcast, Laurel. Thank you. Thank you. So, Laurel, I know it's been uh, an interesting journey for you, and I'd like to hear a little bit more about it. Uh, I alluded in the intro there uh, to how you came from high school not wanting to run at all to all of a sudden in college taking up triathlon. So I'd like to hear what was it that really got you into multi-sport in the first place? 
Um, so growing up while I hated running, um, I completed or I competed in the triathlon of horseback riding, which is three day eventing. Um, so I feel like that sort of plugged it in my mind of what triathlon was since they were so often compared. Um, and there were multiple disciplines in that and it just required a different set of skills. Um, so as I was recovering from surgery and I was thinking of ways that I could get in shape. I started cross training um, and I went to a beautiful college in the foothills of Virginia um, and thought, you know, this is a great way to explore more of my campus and get out. So I started just running a little bit here and there um, to kind of get in shape. And as much as I loved running, I really liked the aspect of multiple sports and having other things to do. And I felt that having the biking and the swimming helps my body take less of a beating than just strictly running. So that's kind of what got me into it. And then as all triathlete junkies know, after you do your first race and you're kind of hooked, then, then you look for the next thing to do. And that's kind of how my journey got started. And what, you know, you mentioned limitations, or at least I did, and based on your bio, what, what limitations did you have and how have they progressed since your diagnosis? Yeah, so before I had surgery, running was not an option. Um, walking was a major struggle uh, just based on the muscles that had atrophied and, and the deformities I had in my feet and ankles. Um, so that those were big limitations before that. Um, but I also felt when I tried to run or exercise that my muscles just felt weak and like they fatigued really quickly. And some of that was likely just being out of shape and using muscles and working in a way that I hadn't before, but some of it's just having muscular dystrophy. Um, but after having my surgeries, um, and what they did, I had ligament transfers and I've had hardware put in my feet. My surgeon said that the amount of force that's applied when running is not recommended, um, for the hardware that I have. And that with that, my screws and plates will shift, um, that I'll develop arthritis in a way that's worse and I could damage my hardware. Um, so he said, you know, biking and swimming is fine and other exercise is fine, but running is a, is a big no. And you of course took that as a challenge. Um, I mean, it wasn't necessarily a challenge, but I, I thought I'm already doing it and I love it and it's going okay. So I'm not going to stop doing it. And my thinking too was you gave me these new feet. I'm going to see what they can do. And how long ago was that? Um, let's see. I had my first surgery in 2011 and my second in 2012. Oh, so, so far, so good. So far, so good. I did have to get um, custom orthotics and, and all of that to just kind of help support my feet a little bit more, but it's been going well. Now, tell me about uh, the challenges you sort of dealt with internally uh, you know, you told me that when you initially started in the sport, you began as an age grouper and then made the difficult decision in your mind to transition to the PC physically challenged division. Tell me about that journey. Um, yeah. So when I first started with triathlon, I didn't do enough research and didn't even really know that PC was a thing. I didn't know it was a category. 
So my first couple triathlons that I signed up for were simply by default that I was an age grouper. Um, but my first half Ironman I did as an age grouper and I was aware of the PC category, but for some reason I felt like I didn't qualify for that. Like I wasn't impaired enough to be a PC athlete just because I've been able to manage my muscular dystrophy really well. Um, but I think I sold myself a little short in that because I am impacted by it. I just try not to let it impact me. Um, so when I took a step back and compared myself to able-bodied athletes, I saw the limitations that I faced. I saw that there were other PC athletes with similar conditions. Well, maybe not Shark or Marie Tooth. Maybe they had MS with similar limitations. And I thought, well, you know, I'm kind of in a similar situation that they are. I should compete against people who are kind of on a level playing field. So I'm glad you said uh, what you said, where uh, you said that, you know, you managed your muscular dystrophy really well, because that leads me to really the gist of why I wanted to talk to you today. And that has to do with how Laurel and I met. We were introduced at Ironman Louisville by a mutual friend, Kayla Long, uh, who knows Laurel much better than I do. And as we were walking over to transition one day, uh, I commented that Laurel had such a low number and I asked how that was and she said she was in the physically challenged division and I commented to her in an offhanded way that I thought that she looked remarkably able-bodied for a physically challenged athlete as if to say, in my mind, that she was managing whatever disability she had exceptionally well and looked just remarkably able-bodied. But Laurel took that differently and I wanted to talk to her more about it because she was really initially quite offended because she didn't take my meaning the way I had intended it. And it brought me back to a conversation I had with uh, Liz McTurnan uh, on an earlier episode of the podcast. Liz, as you may remember, is a hand cycle athlete. And when I spoke with her, I mentioned the fact that uh, many able-bodied athletes look at what she and her competitors do, and we often find that inspirational, and not realizing that that was not something that hand cycle athletes like to hear. They don't like to you know, think of themselves as doing anything different than what able-bodied athletes are doing, and so being inspirational is not something they appreciate. And similarly, I, I had you know, trespassed into Laurel's world without recognizing it, because I'm sure many of us able-bodied athletes don't have people like Laurel in our lives. And so I really wanted to spend some time talking to Laurel about our interaction and about how we as able-bodied athletes can be, first of all, more sensitive to uh, uh, physically challenged athletes, and second of all, be supportive in a way that uh, doesn't make them feel uncomfortable. So Laurel, why don't you tell your version of our interaction and how it made you feel? In seeing your comment now, it's such a compliment, but in the moment I took it as, oh, you look really able-bodied, like what's wrong with you? There's n- there's nothing wrong with you. Essentially, why are you a PC athlete? Um, and I, I think I assumed that and took it that way because I've had comments like that of people making assumptions or questioning why I'm a PC athlete and kind of what my motives are. I think a lot of people think that um, PC athletes can qualify for Kona. So I've even had people reach out to me and say, hey, are you a PC athlete to get a Kona slot? Um, But PC athletes can't qualify. We have to go through a lottery. So there's really no benefit, I guess, other than maybe a low bib number and getting to start with the pro women, which is really cool. Um, But but truly, there's no there's no motive other than just competing with other people who are also limited. 
And uh, just I want to explore a little bit about the physically challenged because I know I, I was educated so much by Liz. You, uh, when you race as in the PC division, do you have to list your uh, disability so that you're racing against other people with a similar disability? Or um, is it just the whole division just races against each other? The whole division just races against each other. I know for USAT sanctioned events or or not Ironman branded events, you do get um, broken up into categories based on your disability, which is really cool because um, amputees can race against similar amputees and and so forth. Um, but for for Ironman specific races, they just lump all PC athletes together. Yeah. And I want to go back to something you said about the fact that, you know, first of all, physically challenged athletes don't get Kona slots. Second of all, they're not listed in the results, which I find appalling. Uh, and uh, they're not like, you know, I, I almost feel like they are, in, you know, in a separate category that is lesser because they're not listed in the results. And I, I've always wondered why that is. And I don't know if there's a move afoot to change that, because it seems to me that that's just... Um, diminishing what you guys accomplish. Yeah, yeah, it's a real bummer to to not have that listed. But it's funny that we still get the the emails to see where we rank comparatively, and that we can still get all world athlete points. So it's just a weird yeah. way that they handle it. So go back to what you were saying about how uh, you will, you know, you would often hear people questioning your disability. What, what other kinds of things do people say that really, you know, either because they don't know any better or because they're being malicious, the kinds of things that you hear that really are unappreciated? Um, things of what are you doing racing as a PC um, or even even similar to what you said, but with a negative way, like in a, in a truly malicious way of, well, you look fine. Um, I had someone once say, you know, if you're competing in half Ironman and Ironman races, how physically challenged are you? Wow. Yeah. Uh, so, so there's kind of a bad taste in my mouth about comments being made about it. I try uh, initially, I tried to conceal that I was racing as a PC athlete just because I was, wary of comments like this. Um, but now I've kind of come to embrace it. Even on my Instagram bio, I put that I'm a PC triathlete because I think it's something to be proud of. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think it's definitely something to be proud of. I mean, it's proud of doing an Ironman to begin with, but to do it, I mean, with muscular dystrophy, uh, that's absolutely, you should be more than proud. Um, how can able-bodied athletes be sensitive and supportive? I mean, clearly, you know, not, not questioning your disability. I mean, that's obviously, but what are things that, that we can do to, um, try and, you know, encourage you without being, you know, either patronizing or, or in any way negative? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's, it's specific and individual for, for each person, but I don't mind answering questions about it. Like I understand that there's going to be some inquisitive nature of, you know, you look at some people who race in the PC category and you wonder like, well, what's their deal? What's wrong with them? And I think it just comes in your phrasing and your tone and how you come across. Um, and I think one thing that a couple PC athletes are open to is people saying, Hey, what's your story? Like, you know, I see you're racing PC. That's, that's awesome. What got you to this point? 
even just asking what inspired us to, to get into racing triathlon, especially endurance events. And I think that opens up a dialogue where we can kind of share a little bit about how we got to that point. Tell me a little bit about your training. How, how do you have to modify your training given your, you know, your limitations? Um, I feel now I feel like I'll be able to change this given that I have a couple, you know, cycles under my belt, but I do really, really long training, um, programs. I have a coach who's amazing and, um, I had a 30 week program for this, this Ironman, which I feel like is kind of what I need. So things have to be incredibly gradual. There's no jumping in increase, um, of intensity or, or duration for me that just does not work. Um, but also working in some extra recovery is key and having the flexibility to know, I feel like I know my body really well at this point and there are just some good days and there are some really bad, bad days. And to have the flexibility to say, Hey, today's a bad day. I think I need to rest or do an easy swim instead of, you know, running or biking. Um, that's one thing that I do. I also have found that nutrition and really focusing on recovery has been key for me. I can't just, which I mean, that goes for anyone, but I truly fall apart if, if I don't prioritize that. And, you know, you mentioned the gradual build. Does that build include like, you know, intervals of higher, uh, intensity, or do you really spend most of the time in like the endurance zone? No, um, I do intervals of higher intensity and, and have really grown to love that, um, and feel like I've, I've gotten a lot stronger, but with anything that's intense or really heavy, the next couple days have to be lighter. So, so I feel like my coach has gotten really creative, um, and has been super supportive in how she programs my workouts and understands kind of what needs to happen for me. And is there, um, a, like a supporting group, uh, amongst the physically challenged athletes, do you guys communicate with each other and support each other through training and racing? Um, unfortunately I'm not incredibly plugged in with the PC triathletes. Um, I am a part of Sharka Marie tooth athletes page and there are a lot of triathletes in that. Um, so that's been supportive, but it's, it's funny that this is getting brought up because I spoke with a fellow PC athlete yesterday, um, on the phone and we talked about how we'd love to have the PC athletes come together, whether that's at races or putting together a training camp or just having more awareness and, and having people turn out for these races would be unique. Well, I hope that uh, in some small way we have done a little bit of that here on this uh, podcast interview today. Laurel Graham, I can't thank you enough for educating me, for educating my listeners, and for joining me on the podcast. Uh, Laurel is a recent new Ironman. She has plans to do another one next year, correct? Yes. Which one are you up for? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> haven't pulled the pu haven't pulled the pin yet, huh? I haven't, not quite yet. I'm mulling over a few. All right. Well, uh, wherever that is, you can bet that she'll be doing it with a big smile on her face and with uh, a lot of supporters. She's on Instagram, and I'm going to include that link in the show notes. Laurel, thank you so much for being with me today on the TriDoc Podcast, and thank you so much for um, just a great dialogue uh, over the weeks that we've known each other. Thank you so much.
With the coming of springtime and being sensitive to the fact that many triathlons are unfortunately being cancelled, I am nonetheless going to bring back the Triathlon Routal, that segment of the show when I'm joined by a guest to discuss, review, and give a sort of travel guide to one of the popular races on the World Triathlon Corporation circuit. I'm going to start this year's uh, series with a race that is taking place a little bit later into the summer because uh, I hope, and I, I'm sure you'll all agree, that by that point, the current crisis that has been initiated by the response to the COVID-19 virus is going to have passed and that these races will actually take place. So to join me in discussing this race in the Buckeye State is uh, Elizabeth Sorensen. Elizabeth is a medical student in Long Island, New York, and she has been participating in 70.3 in Ironman races since 2017. In 2018, she uh, did the Ohio 70.3 race, and she returns to the TriDoc podcast to speak with me about that today. Welcome once again, Elizabeth. Hi, thanks for having me. All right. So as I often like to do when we talk about races on the show, uh, we begin first with some of the considerations about signing up. Is this one of the races that you have to sign up for quickly? Does it sell out fast? Or is this something you can wait till just before the sort of race day to make up your mind on? So you can definitely wait right up until race day. For me, I actually signed up for this race two weeks before the race took place. Okay. <laughs> so you definitely have some time. Now, I'm guessing this year, all bets are off uh, with all of the early season race cancellations. I won't be surprised to see people moving their plans around and uh, seeing people sign up for races in the summer. So if you haven't signed up for this one and it's one you're thinking about, keep an eye on it because uh, it could fill up quickly as early season races are canceled. Uh, okay, how about travel and gear transport considerations? Uh, I understand you drove there. I did drive there. Yeah. So, um, it was about an eight to 10 hour trip from, um, I came from Long Island, New York. Um, so, um, <laughs> it was definitely a trek, but, um, a lot of country roads, easy driving. Um, so I definitely would recommend driving if it's doable for you just because the roads are really easy. Um, yeah, it's a lot of point and shoot highways along cornfields and, um, takes out the consideration of having to transport your bike and whatnot. And if people were going to fly, I gather there's a couple of options into what cities I could fly into. Yeah, I think, um, Cleveland is about two hours east of where the race takes place. But, um, I think Columbus would be a better option. Um, it's much closer to Delaware where the race takes place. Okay. And is Delaware uh, right on Lake Erie or is it uh, removed from the lake? It's not on Lake Erie. There's a smaller lake where the swim takes place. Okay. All right. Uh, and in terms of where to stay, uh, you know, in terms of uh, whether or not it's easy to find accommodations close to transition, uh, is Delaware a fairly big town, a small city? How would you describe it? Um. It's definitely pretty big. I'd say there's a lot of options in terms of finding places to stay. Um, I stayed at um, like a Motel 6 that I wouldn't recommend, but um, I know life, I have to Life on a medical student budget. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I had some friends who stayed at a Holiday Inn and that worked out for them just fine. Okay. Uh, was there much to see or do in the area or is this the kind of race you can just show up and do the race and then you're done? 
Yeah, the um, downtown Delaware itself is really cute. They had lots of shops and restaurants. Um, you can maybe spend an afternoon um, walking around, getting ice cream, going to the different restaurants, but there's not much to do in terms of tourist attractions in the actual uh, town of Delaware. Okay. Uh, all right, let's turn our attention to the race itself. Uh, considering first the swim, you mentioned that the swim takes place in a lake. Uh, what's the water like? And uh, tell us a little bit about entry and exit. Yeah, so um, the swim for Ohio is historically slow. Um, I'm not sure exactly why that is. I didn't believe it until after I had done it. I felt like I had crushed the swim and my time was slow. Um, <laughs> Interesting. So it's just something to be aware of going in. Don't be discouraged if your swim split is a little bit slower than you anticipate it being. Um, it's um, The water itself is very um, clear. Um, it's great if you're not a confident swimmer because there's no chop, there's no current, at least in the morning that I raced, it was crystal clear. Um, it's one loop out and back, uh, fresh water. Um, the only thing is that it wasn't wetsuit legal just because of the time of place it takes here. And I'm pretty sure it's for the most part, not a wetsuit legal swim. Well, that would probably account for some of the slowness of the swim yeah i would imagine uh and is it a rolling start mm -hmm. okay. yeah it's a self-seating rolling start right. and is this a big race is this uh like one of the larger races or is this because i you know based on where it is there's quite a few large cities it could pull yeah. from i'm just curious how big the race is yeah it's definitely a big race <laughs> okay all right uh and then getting in and out of the water is it a sandy beach is it a rocky beach uh yeah, just a few pebbles here and there, but for the most part, a sandy beach. Okay. And then uh, considering T1, is it close to the swim exit? Do you have a long run? No, it's pretty close. Okay. And then mm -hmm. uh, T1, on a is it uh, like on a grassy surface or is it a paved surface? I'm pretty sure it's in a parking lot. Okay. So paved parking lot. Uh, you get mm -hmm. your bike, you get out of there, and you're on to the course. So mm -hmm. let's talk a little bit about the course, uh, beginning first sure. with uh, just what, you know, general characteristics is it an out and back is it a loop or what is it like mm -hmm. um it's one loop um and the first like 40 to 50 miles are essentially pancake flat um you can definitely pick up a lot of speed um and then um towards the end there's just a few rolling hills so that's just something to be aware of is that um it's so, so incredibly flat for the first um, 40 to 50 miles that the rolling hills at the end kind of take you by surprise. Okay. Um, <laughs> but they're there yeah. at the end. Um, and I found the bike course, at least on my Garmin, was a little bit long. I clocked at like 57 and a half miles or something like that. And I heard from other athletes that um, who said the same. So that's another thing to be aware of with the bike course. And were the road conditions pretty good? They were. Okay. Uh, did you notice a lot of drafting? Um, not more than normally takes place. Okay. Uh, and I find personally that with the self-seated starts, that really does help. Uh, I find that the drafting is much improved with that. So that's good to know. Uh, any uh, specific danger points uh, on the course that uh, you think, like, are there any U-turns or sharp turns that people should know about? Not that I can remember. Um, 
just at the very end with the rolling hills, there's a few intersections. Um, and I ran into some trouble with the cars at the intersections where they were having trouble um, getting the cars to cooperate. I had to actually stop at one point um, for the cars. So um, hopefully that wouldn't be the case for everybody, but just something to be aware of, to be super alert for those last few miles of the course. Yeah. Yeah, American drivers not known for their patience uh, with respect to bicyclists, you know, unfortunately. Okay, uh, so pretty uncomplicated bike course. Sounds like it's fast. Mm -hmm. That's uh, good for the bikers out there. Uh, coming mm -hmm. back into T2, I assume it's uh, since it's a loop, T2 is obviously the same place as T1. It's it's actually not. It's a point-to-point. -point, oh, okay. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so you start off at this at a park. Um Probably something I should have mentioned beforehand is that there isn't really parking in the actual park where the um, swim start is. So you do have to park near where T2 is at the start of the day and take a shuttle um, to where T1 and the swim start are. Um, but at the end of the bike course, you come back to around the area where you've parked your car and where T2 is. Um, and T2 is on a football field. Um, so you roll into the football field, rack your bike and head out on the run. So just going back to that, then for the logistics, you, uh, where is like Ironman village and athlete check-in and all that? Is that located at T2? It's all located at T2. So you do everything mm -hmm. at T2, you check in your bike the day before the race at T1. Mm -hmm. Do you have to drop your run gear off at T2 the, the day before? Or do you do that the morning of the race? Yeah, the day the day before you drop off um, your run gear at T2 and you drop off your bike at T1. Okay. All right. So uh, we're finished the bike now. We're uh, in the we're uh, in transition at the football field and we head out on the run. Tell us a little bit about the run course. Sure. Um, so the run has a couple of rolling hills, um, nothing too drastic. Um, for the most part, it's flat um, and there's definitely a lot of shade. Um, it's a two loop course and there's a ton of spectator support. So I actually did this race alone. I didn't have, um, any Sherpa or, um, anyone coming to cheer me on. And I felt super, um, <laughs> hyped up just from the amount of, um, course support and spectators that were out there. So it's definitely, um, a very, um, athlete friendly run course. That's great. And uh, was it rolling? Was there hills or was it flat like the bike yeah, course? Um, there were a couple rolling hills. Okay. And mm -hmm. uh, is it out and back? Is it laps? What's it like? It's kind of like a lollipop. You go out, yep. you do two loops, and then you come back. Okay. Uh, mm -hmm. Very crowded uh, on the run course or lots of room to pass, lots of room for people? There's plenty of room to pass, but there's also plenty of people out there, so... Um, yeah, I, I never felt alone on the run course. Okay. Uh, eight stations, well supplied, well, uh, spaced every, you know. Yeah, definitely. Okay. And what was the temperature and how would you describe the weather on the day you did it? I know that Ohio can get hot and humid. <laughs> what was it like when you did it? It was fairly hot. I think it was either in the high 70s or low 80s. Oh, that, um, that is not fairly hot. <laughs> Boulder is always in the 90s, so 70 or 80 okay. is okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it was it was mild. <laughs> and But the humidity, was that a problem? Not that I remember. Okay. All right. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like a, a pretty fun race. Was it scenic? I mean, was it a nice course? Yeah, the... Um, Bike 
was a lot of cornfields. Um, and the run, um, it wasn't super scenic. There were some nice trees. Um, I think the crowd support was really what made the run. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And uh, a finish line experience, a pretty typical Ironman finish line, or was there anything so special about it? The finish line is really fun. Um, you finish on the track that is surrounding the football field of T2. So you kind of take a finish lap, so to speak, around the track um, and then come into the finish line. Okay, great. Uh, awesome. So all in all, you know, would you consider this uh, like a race that people should really strongly consider? Or is this one that uh, is they should do if they're, it's convenient for them, but, you know, not necessarily prioritize? I definitely think um, it's a race to strongly consider, especially um, for a first 70.3, just because um, the course um, is not as technical on the bike um, and the run is well shaded. There's a lot of great support. So there's definitely a lot of great reasons to consider it for um, your first 70.3 or if you're looking for just a PR or a really fast time. Um, I will say if you're trying to get a 70.3 world slot or to get on the podium, um, it's a pretty competitive race and a pretty big race. Um, so it might not be the best option if that's what you're looking for. Right. And on those flat courses really accentuate a lot of speed guys. So mm -hmm. it's hard to, unless you're really fast, it's hard to really distinguish yourself there. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, Elizabeth Sorensen is a multiple 70.3 and Ironman finisher. She uh, joined me, uh, uh, several episodes ago to talk about her experience uh, at a very difficult Ironman Maryland. But today she was here on the Triathlete Routard to talk about a much more pleasant experience at the Ohio 70.3 race. Thank you so much for joining me, Elizabeth, and good luck uh, with your studies in uh, the upcoming Step 2 exam in medical school. Thank you. I appreciate it. And that's it for another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I hope that you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. Links to the medical references as well as to everything else discussed on the show can be found in the show notes at www.tridocpodcast.podbean.com. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit www.tridoccoaching.com where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the TriDoc Podcast Facebook page, TriDoc Coaching on Instagram, and the TriDoc Coaching YouTube channel. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at www.reverbnation.com, where I hope that you will visit and give small, independent bands a chance. On the next episode of the TriDoc Podcast, Mikhail Erickson is a Finnish triathlete and coach who now makes his home in Lisbon, Portugal. Like me, he's very interested in the science behind performance and coaching, and he hosts a podcast called That Triathlon Show, in which he delves into many subjects that are near and dear to my own heart. He joins me for a discussion on his approach to coaching and how he uses science to inform his own methods. The Triathlete Routard will be back with another summertime race in the hopes that we will have some kind of season of racing this year. And, of course, I will have a medical question to answer. Until then, train hard, train healthy.